Chapter thirty three of Delorme by G. P. R. James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty three. Achilles, on his return, amused me with the account I have just given, while he rubbed my shoulder with some ungent bought for the purpose, and though I was not over well pleased at having been played off as a robber, with so particular a description also as he had given of my person, yet I was not at all sorry that the jeweller had been pinched for his roguery, and not a little rejoiced with the recovery of my ring. As I have before said, the little player, though as cunning as a sharper in some matters, was in others as simple as a child, and, like a boy with his first crown piece, fortune never gave him any sum, however small, but he seemed to think it inexhaustible. Thus, from time to time, he found so many delightful ways of employing my hundred louis, that had I followed his advice, one single day would have seen me at the end of all my riches. But I soon put a stop to the building of his castles in the air, by informing him that I intended to live in the most rigid economy, till such time as I had an opportunity of writing to my father, at the same time begging him to make up his mind to follow my example, if he still held his intention of remaining with me. "'Oh, very well, monsieur, very well,' cried he gaily. "'Anything contents me. "'I can live upon ortolans and stewed eels, "'but I do not object to onion soup and a crust of bread. "'Nay, when the soup cannot be had, the crust must serve.' "'Having arranged in my own mind "'all my plans for pursuing my economical system "'as strictly as possible, "'I sat down to the long-deferred task "'of writing to my father.' for now that i had seen helen half the difficulty was removed no matter what were the contents of the letter which i wrote it never went posts in those days were not the regular mechanical contrivances which our present glorious monarch has instituted for the purpose of facilitating the communication of every part of his dominions with the others couriers indeed passed to and fro from one part of the empire to another carrying the letters of individuals as well as the dispatches of state but all the arrangements concerning them were much in the same state as louis the eleventh had left them their departure from paris was at uncertain and irregular times and their journeys were generally directed towards the principal cities having either commercial or political relations with the capital the difficulty therefore of conveying anything to a remote and little frequented part of the empire delayed my letter for some time and before an opportunity presented itself circumstances had changed in the meanwhile i employed my mornings in searching for the mansion wherein i had seen helen but although aided by all the wit of little achilles to whom i communicated enough information to guide him on his search i wandered through the streets of paris in vain watching the opening gates of every large hotel i saw in the hope of beholding the livery in which the servants i had seen were dressed and forcing my recollection to recall the appearance of the archway under which i had been carried till a thousand times i deceived myself into hope and as often encountered disappointment once only i thought myself sure of the discovery the porte cochere of a house near the place royale struck me as the very same i had passed while borne upon the brancard by the servants every ornament every pillar was there as far as i could remember there were the curious gothic mouldings upon which the torchlight had flashed as we passed through 
there were the two immense couchant bears carved in stone on each side of the arch on the back of one of which the bearers had rested the litter while the companions opened the gates everything seemed the same and taking my stand under the porch of the monastery of the minims i kept watch for two hours till a servant coming out showed me to my surprise a livery totally different from that which i had both hoped and expected to see i may be asked what was my object in thus seeking for helen when i knew when i felt that my union with her was impossible when at the very thought her brother's spirit seemed to rise up before me and with the same ghastly look which he had worn in death bid me forget such hopes for ever why did i seek her no one that has loved will ever ask i sought her for the bright brief happiness which the presence of the loved still gives after every expectation is crushed and withered i sought her with that dreamy sort of lingering with which a mother hangs over the frail clay of her dead child my hopes were blighted my happiness was gone and yet the very object that most nourished my regret was that on which i could look most fondly and which i sought with the most anxious most unremitting care thus passed my mornings in fruitless search and continual disappointment my evenings flew in a different manner not in studying the sure way of winning or in practising its precepts for such a horror had seized me of that hell-invented vice gaming and of all that appertains to it that my first care had been to throw the book i had bought into the fire the temporary passion which had seized me i looked upon and can almost look upon now as a fit of insanity for taught as i had been from my infancy to abhor its very name nothing but absolute madness could have hurried me to a vice at once so degrading and so dangerous which as far as regards the mind is in fact at best a combination of avarice and frenzy i had now bought myself a variety of books on military tactics and without any defined purpose in the study i spent my whole evenings in poring over these treatises of attack and defence a greater and a nobler species of gambling than that which i had quitted it is true but only less mad inasmuch as it is a game which any one nation can compel another to play and where those must lose who have not studied to win i also went occasionally to a hall that an italian fencer had fitted up in the rue pave for the purpose of turning a high reputation he had acquired in europe into ready money here the room which was furnished with all sorts of arms offensive and defensive was well lighted every night and the assembled company either formed practising parties amongst themselves or took lessons from the italian himself who was one of the most athletic men i ever beheld and certainly a most complete master of his weapons my father i have said was perhaps the most skilful swordsman of his day and he had taken care that his son should not be wanting in an accomplishment in which he was such a proficient i was therefore certainly more than equal in point of skill to any one who frequented the italian's hall and very nearly a match for himself this however seemed rather to give him pleasure than otherwise and whenever i entered he saluted me with the respect which he enthusiastically imagined due to every one skilful in the noble science of arms frequently inviting me to stretch my limbs with him in an assault and taking a delight in showing me all the minute refinements of his art this was the sole diversion i allowed myself 
though while I mingled with the crowds where I knew no one, and wandered through the streets where I was a stranger, a sad feeling of loneliness, of miserable desolation, crept over my heart, and I returned to my lodging in the evening, grave, melancholy, and discontented. Although there were now several companies of actors continually at Paris, to the play I never went, that being a sort of amusement too costly for the narrow bounds to which I had restrained my expenses. And, indeed, so strictly economical was I in all my habits, that my good landlady began to fancy me in want, and to show her commiseration for my condition by all those little delicate pieces of charity which a person who has felt both pride and suffering knows how to evince towards those whose spirit has not yet wholly bowed to its fate. Any little delicacy which fell in her way, she would add it to the breakfast that Achilles brought me from the traiteurs, nor did she ever ask for her rent, but rather avoided me on those days when it became due, though I believe in truth she needed it not a little. I understood her motives, and though I did not choose to undeceive her, I took care that she should not be a loser by the kindness which she showed me. Finding in her also a delicacy of feelings and refinement of conversation, which were above her station, I would sometimes, when any chance led me to speak with her, endeavour to ascertain whether her situation had ever been more elevated than that which she at present filled, and on one of these occasions she told me gratuitously that she had been in former years governante to the beautiful Henriette de Verne, whose private marriage with the Count de Bagnols I have already mentioned more than once. She was surprised to find that I was acquainted with so much of the history, of which she knew very little more herself. As I was found to have been privy to the marriage, said she, I was sent away directly, and denied all communication with my young lady, after it was discovered. But I saw the bloody spot where the poor Count was slain, and the dents of the feet where the struggle had passed, and a fearful struggle it must have been, for two of the Marquis of St. Brie's men remained ill at the village for weeks afterwards, and no one was allowed to see them but his own surgeon. One of them died also, and his confession was said to be so strange that the priest sent to Rome to know how far he was justified in keeping it secret. After that I came to Paris, and I heard no more of the family, which all went to ruin, except, indeed, someone told me that my young lady died shortly afterwards in a convent at Arche. As I was, of course, anxious to transmit the papers which chance had placed in my hands to any of the surviving members of the Count de Bagnol's family, I inquired particularly what information she could give me concerning them, but she was more ignorant of everything relating to them than even myself. One morning, on my return from my vain searching after Helen, I was surprised on being informed that a stranger had inquired for me during my absence, and had begged the landlady to inform me that he would call again in the evening. Where reason has no possible clue to guide her through the labyrinth of any doubt, she pauses at the gate, while imagination seems to step the more boldly in, and, as if in mockery of her timid companion, sports through every turning, till she either finds the track by accident, or tired of wandering through the inexplicable maze, she spreads her Dedalian wings, and soars above the walls that would confine her. I had no cause to believe that one person sought me more than another, and yet my fancy set to work as busily as if I had the most certain data to reason from. 
My first thoughts immediately returned to Arnaud, and my next to the Chevalier de Montenero, and so strange was the ascendancy which the last had gained over my mind, that the very idea of meeting with him inspired me with as much joy as if all my difficulties had been removed. But the description given in answer to my inquiries at once put to flight such a supposition. The stranger, my landlady informed me, was evidently a clergyman by his dress, and by his manner and appearance she guessed him to be one of a distinguished rank. It was, therefore, evidently neither the Chevalier nor Arnaud, and the only supposition I could form upon the subject was that the Cardinal de Richelieu had at length deigned to take some notice of me. My disposition was naturally impatient of all expectation, and the dull heaviness of the last week, which I had passed day after day in the same fruitless pursuit, had worked me up to a pitch of irritable anxiety, which people of a different temperament can hardly imagine. I wearied imagination, I exhausted conjecture, I hoped, I feared, I doubted, till day waned and night came, and giving up all expectation of seeing the stranger that evening, I cursed him heartily for having said he would come, and not keeping his word, and sat down once more to my theory of tactics. I had scarcely, however, got through one quarter of a campaign, when the rapid motion of Achilles's feet on the stair announced news of some kind, and in a moment after he threw open the door, giving admission to a stranger. The person who entered was not much older than myself. He was tall and apparently well made, but his clerical dress served him a good deal in this respect, concealing a pair of legs which were somewhat clumsy, and not the straightest in the world. His head was one of the finest I have ever seen, and his face without, perhaps possessing one feature that was regularly handsome, except the full rounded chin and the broad expanse of forehead, instantly struck and pleased, giving the idea of great powers of mind joined with a light and brilliant wit that sparkled playfully in his clear dark eye. He bowed low as he entered and advanced towards a seat, which I begged him to take, with that quietness of motion which, without being stealthy, is silent and calm, and is ever a sign of high breeding and good society. I made Achilles a sign to withdraw, and expressing myself honoured by the stranger's visit, begged to know whether I was to attribute it to any particular object, or merely to his kind politeness towards a stranger. "'If there were any kindness in doing a pleasure to oneself,' replied the stranger, "'I would willingly take the credit of it, but in the present instance, as the gratification is my own, I cannot pretend to any merit.' This answer was somewhat too vague to satisfy me, and I replied that I was fully sensible of the honour done me, and would have much pleasure in returning his visit when I knew where I might have the opportunity. My method of receiving him, as equal with equal, seemed, I thought, somewhat to surprise him, for, half closing his eyes in a manner which seemed common to him, he glanced round my small apartment with a scrutinising look, too brief to be impertinent, and yet too remarking to escape my notice. "'I shall esteem myself honoured by your visit,' replied he at length. "'I am but a poor abbé. My name, Jean de Gondy, and you will find me for the present at the house of my uncle, the Duke de Retz.' It was, indeed, the famous abbé, afterwards Cardinal de Retz, with whom I was then in conversation. Not yet three-and-twenty years of age, 
he had already acquired one of the most singular reputations that ever man possessed daring intriguing and ambitious nothing daunted him in his enterprises nothing repelled him in their course storms and tumults were his element and when before he was seventeen he wrote his famous conjuration de fiesque he seemed to point out the scene in which he was himself destined to act to which nature prompted him from the first and circumstances called him in the end in the manner there was a strange mixture of calm suavity thoughtless vivacity policy frankness and pride which combined together served perhaps better to cover his immediate motives and hide his real character than the appearance of any uniform habit of mind which he could have assumed all men contain within themselves strange contradictions but he was the only one i ever knew who upon the most mature reflection acted in continual contradiction to himself he would often put in practice the most consummate strokes of policy to gain a trifle or to satisfy an appetite and he would commit the most egregious follies and effect the most extravagant passions to hide the shrewdest political schemes and conceal the best calculated and most subtle enterprises he was a man on whom one could never calculate with certainty it seemed his pleasure to disappoint whatever expectations had been formed of him and yet to hear him reason one would have judged that the slightest action of his life was regulated by strong conclusions from fixed unvarying principles i had heard his character from many others as well as from the marquis de st brie but as this last gentleman had calculated when he sketched it to me that my life would be limited to three days at the utmost he could have had no possible motive in deceiving me with this knowledge of his character then it required no great discernment to see that the visit of de retz was not without an object and resolving if it were possible to ascertain precisely what that object was i bowed on his announcing himself and said of course monsieur de retz it is needless for me to give you my name you were certainly aware of that before you did me the honour of this visit no indeed replied he i am perfectly ignorant both of your name and rank though by your appearance and all i have heard of you i can have no doubt in regard to the latter the truth is i was informed by persons on whom i could depend that a young gentleman of singularly prepossessing appearance and manners had taken this apartment and was supposed to be under some temporary difficulty i turned very red i believe but he proceeded people will talk of their neighbours affairs you know and tis useless to be angry with them but hearing this as i have said i felt an irresistible impulse to visit you and to render you any assistance in my power nor will i regret it even if i have been misinformed inasmuch as it has gained me the pleasure of your acquaintance with such a speech there was no possible means of being offended though i felt not a little angry at my affairs having been made matters of commiseration throughout the town i was rather inclined to believe also that the trouble which m de retz had given himself did not originate entirely in benevolence i did not doubt that charity might have had some part therein for he had acquired a reputation which i believe he deserved for generous feeling towards the sufferings of his fellow-creatures but the motives of men are so mixed that it is in vain tracing their original source like a giant stream the course of human action arises very often in five or six different fountains 
each of which has nearly the same right as the others to be considered the head and besides this in flowing on from its commencement to its end it receives the accession of a thousand other different currents so that at the last not one drop in a million is pure water which welled from any individual source i was sure therefore of doing m de retz no great injustice in supposing that his benevolence might be tinged with other feelings and i replied i should be sorry sir that a mistake had given you the trouble of coming here did i not derive so much benefit from that false rumour my name is the count de lorme and i am happy that the bounty you propose to exercise upon me may be turned towards some other person more needing and deserving it than i do be not offended monsieur de lorme replied de retz at a mistake which has nothing in it dishonouring poverty is much oftener a virtue than wealth but your name strikes me de lorme surely that was not the name of the young gentleman that his highness the count de soissons expected to join him from berne oh no i remember it was count louis de bigorre but no less the same person replied i with an unspeakable joy at seeing the clouds break away that had hung over my fate at finding myself known and expected where i had fancied myself solitary amongst millions i felt as if at those few words i leapt over the barrier which had confined me to my own loneliness and mingled once more in the society of my fellows i have always continued i been called count louis de bigorre but circumstances induced me when i left my father's house to assume the title which really belongs to the eldest son of the counts of bigorre Monsieur de retz saw that there was some mystery in my conduct and he applied himself to discover my secret with an art and industry which would have accomplished much greater things nor did i take any great pains to conceal it from him it is astonishing how weakly the human heart opens to any one who brings it glad news the citadel of the mind throws wide all its gates to receive the messenger of joy and takes little heed to secure the prisoners that are within in the course of half an hour my new acquaintance had made himself acquainted with the greater part of my history and when i began to think of putting a stop to my communication i found that the precaution was of no use the moment however that he saw me begin to retire into myself he turned the conversation again to the count de soissons whom he advised me to seek without further loss of time you will find in him said he all that is charming in human nature in his communion with society he had but one fault originally which was great haughtiness he knew that it was a fault and has had the strength of mind to vanquish it completely so that you will see in him one of the most affable men that france can boast in regard to his private character you must make your own discoveries a great mass of man's mind like the greater part of his body he takes care to cover so that no one shall judge of its defects except they be very prominent and there are thank god as few that have hump-backed minds as hump-backed persons indeed it has become a point of decency to conceal everything but the face even of the mind and none but tatterdemalia and sans culotte ever suffer it to appear in its nakedness to follow my figure then monsieur le comte is always well dressed so that you will find it difficult to know him but however it is not for me to undress him for you take my advice set out for sedan to-morrow where of course you know he is driven from his country by the tyrannizing spirit of our detested and detestable cardinal 
i rather think the count intends to initiate you somewhat deeply into politics but that must be his own doing also break your fast with me to-morrow and i will give you letters and more information is it an engagement i accepted the invitation with pleasure and having answered one or two questions which i put to him monsieur de retz left me for the night End of chapter thirty three